more clearly? Uh, well, if you joined us uh, in the first week of um, our Lent devotional, then uh, I, I pray that fasting from food, whether that was a meal a day or one day entirely, um, that that gave you some space and some reminders to think about and focus on dependence upon the Lord. And so we're going to shift into our second week, and every Sunday we'll kind of regroup and rally back together like this and start to think forward toward what it is that we're going to be focusing on and fasting from in the next week. And so if you don't have one of these books, there are more of them available out the center doors when you leave and um, out here on the welcome desk as if you go out this way. You can grab one of these. This week, our focus is on worship. And uh, what we're fasting from is probably the one that is going to be hardest for me over the seven weeks, and that is sleep. And I don't mean like no sleeping for seven days. That would be unhealthy. Um, Just 30 minutes of sleep a day, that is what we're suggesting. And that can be in the morning, that can be at night. You make that work um, as it works best for you. Um, I often tell people that if I had like a superpower, it is my ability to fall asleep anytime, anywhere. I love myself a good nap. And I love myself a good long night of sleep. And so uh, 30 minutes of sleep a day uh, is going to force me to direct my thoughts to dependence upon the Lord. And specifically what we're focusing on this week is worship. And the way it is that we're kind of structuring that to help you with that a little bit is you'll have in your guide here for week two, there's five days worth of reading. It's all through Psalm 119 split out over five days, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, um, which is all about God's word. And we've also put together for you to use in that 30 minutes each day, a prayer guide. So maybe you say to yourself, I'm all for trying to join with the church and doing this, but I have no idea what I would fill 30 minutes with. I would just be awake staring at the wall. Um, We wanna encourage you to use that time to worship, to spend time in God's word in Psalm 119 and to spend time in prayer. And each day there are some prayer topics. If you're joining with us online, um, the book is online. You can find that there. And we will post each day's prayer prompts to Facebook so that you have those and you can use those and we'll get those up early in the morning. That way they're available for you. Um, If you want to use, you want to include some other elements in that 30 minutes of time, that's fantastic. But we, some time in the word, some time in prayer. You could do some time in actual singing um, if that is the way that you worship. But we're directing our hearts toward focusing on what God has done for us, what he is doing for us, and what he will do. That's what worship is. And we want to encourage you to join us in that. Uh, With that in mind, we're going to spend just a moment in prayer, praying toward that direction. And so this prayer that I'm going to read and we're actually going to engage in together is from a book, The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of prayers, and the title of it is actually Worship. And so um, I've amended it a little bit to make the language things that are a little more familiar to us. But if you have that Valley of Vision book and you want to utilize this prayer over the course of the week, it's entitled Worship. You can find it. I think it's on like page 126 in my book. Um, But let's pray this together. I'll read what's in white. We'll read together what's in the yellow or the gold. So if you would pray with me. Glorious God, It is the flame of my life to worship you, the crown and glory of my soul to adore you, my heavenly pleasure to approach you. Give me power by your spirit to help me worship now, that I might forget the world, 
be brought into fullness of life, be refreshed, comforted, and blessed. Give me knowledge of your goodness that I might not be overawed by your greatness. Give me Jesus, son of man, son of God, that I might not be terrified, but might be drawn near with brotherly love, with holy boldness. He is my mediator, brother, counselor, advocate, helper, lamb. Him alone I seek to glorify. In him alone I am set on high. Crowns to give I have none, but what, I have give, but what you have given I return to you. Content to feel that everything is mine when it is yours and most fully mine when I have surrendered it to you. Let me live wholly to my Savior, free from distractions, from worry, from hindrances to the pursuit of your kingdom in its way. I am pardoned by the blood of Jesus. Give me a new sense of it. Continue to pardon me by it. May I come to the fountain of Christ's love and every day be washed anew that I may worship you always in spirit and in truth. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as you get yourself settled there, let me just pray that the Lord would speak to us from his word. God, thank you for this morning and for the truth of your word to us. God, thank you for the gift and the grace that it is that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. God, that you've shown us who you are, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is. God, and that in revealing yourself to us, you have also revealed the truth of who we are. God, I pray this morning that you would show us afresh the truth of who your son is, that you would show us afresh the truth of who we are, and that by the power of your spirit working in us and the power of your word communicating to us, God, that we would be captured anew, as our prayer said, by the truth of what you've done for us in Jesus. God, we also pray that there would be those who are captured for the very first time by the beauty of who Jesus is and the reality of their need for his saving grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you're married, <clears throat> I want you to think back to the moment that you stood at the altar there across from your spouse and you made some commitments to one another. You made some promises to one another. If you're not married yet, kind of think forward to that day or just think about the verbiage that we typically use in the traditional wedding vows. I take fill in the blank to be my lawfully wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold in sickness and in health, richer, poor, better or worse, till death do us part. Now imagine that you stood up there in that moment and you said, I take fill in the blank to be my wedded fill in the blank, to have and to hold from this day forward in health, but in sickness, let's circle back around and have another conversation. For richer, absolutely, but for poorer, Here's my escape plan. Until death do us part, maybe, but more likely until inconvenience do us part. Your spouse would be looking back at you horrified. You don't enter into that covenant relationship. You don't enter into marriage in a half-hearted sort of way. It's totally... Uh, 
It's, it's totally ridiculous to think about. And yet, I think oftentimes we think about our commitment to following Jesus and our submission to Jesus as king, which is what we're seeing in the gospel of Luke, as like, it can be half-hearted because so long as I give Jesus something, he'll be happy with that. Like I've gifted him with part of who I am or I've gifted Jesus enough of me and he's Jesus and he's all loving. So he's totally fine with whatever shred of myself I'm willing to give. Even if I'm intentionally looking for ways out. Well, but he's Jesus and he just takes me like that. The reality that we're going to see this morning in two different passages in Luke chapter five, and the reason we're doing two passages, verses one to 11 and also 27 to 32, is that both of them have to do with following Jesus. And the reality of that invitation to follow Christ is that a half-hearted acceptance of Jesus's invitation is no acceptance at all. And we'll see that this morning. Just for some quick context, Jesus, beginning in the middle of chapter four, introduced himself as King, Messiah. This is who I am. This is what my ministry is going to look like. Then at the end of chapter four, he began to display or portray what it was that he proclaimed. And he's showing his kingly power and authority over the supernatural and the natural. And then you arrive here at the beginning of chapter five, and Jesus begins to invite people to be his followers. So what does it look like to follow Jesus, to follow the king? This passage this morning, particularly verses one through 11, is one that's very familiar to us. It's one where the like meaning of the passage is not hidden somewhere deep beneath the surface. This is a pretty simple text, but it deals with so much. It deals with salvation and holiness, and sin, sanctification. It deals with evangelism and discipleship. It shows Jesus' divinity and his humanity. And the goal this morning is to just keep all of that there on the surface and direct our hearts to it. Maybe to just be reminded about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, or maybe for the very first time to be invited into that. And so my prayer is that the simplicity of that would be breathtakingly beautiful this morning. Read with me in Luke chapter five. Verses one to 11. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats on the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. 
Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with him. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A half-hearted acceptance of Jesus' invitation is no acceptance at all. I want to start by just kind of like inhabiting the story. And this is actually a really helpful tool that I use all the time when I'm reading scripture. And that's to read it and then to say it in my own words. What just happened if I were to recap it? And so in my own words, here's what just happened. Verses 1 to 11, Jesus calls Simon, Peter, but also James and John to come and follow him. The text tells us that he's teaching by Lake Gennesaret, and that is the same as the Sea of Galilee in the Gospel of John. John refers to it as Lake Tiberias. Three names, one body of water. Jesus is still in Capernaum, which is on, uh, right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing town there. And as Jesus is teaching, large crowds of people are beginning to come and to listen to him. And we're told in verse 1 that they're coming for a specific purpose, and that is to hear God's word. They want this teaching that Jesus has. They know that he has authority, and they want to hear him. And the crowd is so large that Jesus comes to the realization that not everybody is going to be able to hear him. And so he sees a couple of fishing boats that have been left there because the fishers who run those boats are washing their nets. And he finds Simon, who owns one of the boats, and he says, put this a little ways out from land. And so Jesus presses that boat into service as a pulpit, essentially. And he's allowing the water to become a natural amplifier so that people can hear what it is that he has to say. So there's Jesus seated in the boat, and he teaches for some length of time. We don't know how long, and we don't know exactly what he taught. Luke's purpose instead is to show us something about Jesus and about what it means to follow him rather than to detail at this time what it is that Jesus taught. And so he gets done teaching and he looks at Simon and he says, Simon, put it out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. Now, Simon is a fisherman. So if one person in the boat, Simon, Peter, maybe not knowing that Jesus is Lord, knows how to catch fish on the surface, it's Peter. And this moment becomes one where The expert is being told what to do by someone who's not an expert. Like you go into the doctor and you say, hey, doctor, I have this, fill in the blank. And the doctor looks at you and like, we haven't even had a conversation. Well, I used Google last night. Okay. So Simon gives a somewhat passive aggressive answer in response. We've worked all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. They put the nets down. The result is instant and overwhelming. The catch of fish is so staggeringly large, the nets begin to break. And Simon calls over to his fishing partners, James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee, that they would bring their boat over. So now they're using both nets and the nets are withstanding the large catch of fish. But as they pull those fish into the boats, now both boats are sinking. And at the sight of the fish and the reality that the boats are sinking, Simon, Peter, drops to his knees there before Jesus and makes this incredible proclamation, which we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. And then they get everything back to shore and there's this heaping pile of fish on both of these boats. And you just kind of get the sense that Jesus looks at all of those fish, looks at James, John, and Peter and says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they look at the fish, which is more fish than they've ever caught in their lives, which means more money than has ever been available to them in one catch in their entire lives. And they look at that and they look at Jesus and they shrug at the fish and they leave everything to follow Jesus. 
verses 32, or 27 to 32. There's a man named Levi. He's a tax collector. That Levi is Matthew, the same Matthew that wrote the gospel of Matthew. Jesus is walking by one day and Levi is sitting in his tax collector booth. Now it's important to understand at least a couple of things about tax collectors. Number one, they were like the scum of the earth. That's the main thing to understand about tax collectors. And the reason that they were the scum of the earth is because in this region, Galilee, Judea, a Jewish individual works for the Roman government. So you've already sold out to work for the oppressor. That's bad enough. But there's no real regulation when it comes to tax collection. So Rome has a certain amount that they're going to take. But if you're the tax collector, you can walk up to a person's house and say any price over the top of that, and they've got to pay it, then you skim off the top and you send to Rome what goes to Rome. And no one really regulates that. So tax collectors, strike number two, extort people for money. They're liars. They're dishonest. They're like little tyrants who rule over their tax collecting kingdom, taking whatever they want from people. There's Levi. Jesus is walking by in the middle of the street as Levi is sitting in that particular tax collecting place. And Jesus just says, follow me. And what does Levi even know about Jesus at this point? We're not sure. It's the first time he's mentioned in the gospel of Luke. Has he seen Jesus heal? Has he heard him teach? Has he been present when Jesus casted out demons? We have no idea, but something about the invitation is compelling enough to Levi that he just up and leaves his tax collecting booth. Put that in modern terms. Doesn't respond to any of the emails. Doesn't give a two-week notice. He just makes a decision that I'm leaving this job and I'm never coming back. And even if I wanted to come back, they're not gonna take me back at this point because I up and left. When I was in college, one summer I worked a a number of jobs, but the real reason was because I needed a certain amount of money, a very specific amount of money to buy a guitar that I wanted. And so uh, I had a job taking inventory, like stock inventory for this company. And I made it to the point where I had literally like to the dollar enough money and then I just stopped showing up for work. And they called and I started avoiding the calls. It was like, look, sooner or later, they're gonna get the point. I'm not working for them anymore. And we can either call it that they fired me or I quit. I don't really, the semantics don't bother me. I got my guitar, I'm moving on in life. That's Levi, I'm just moving on. I'm gonna go and follow Jesus. And then what does Levi do? He throws a, I quit my job party. That's what happens in verse 29. Levi hosted, and it's not just some sort of little get together for dinner. Remember, He's taking money, as much of it as he wants, from people, and he's very wealthy. So he throws a grand banquet, we're told, for Jesus. But look at who's present. He rallies up all of his tax collector friends. We're told when the Pharisees enter into things, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? This isn't exactly an A-list party. And the Pharisees were left off the guest list, but the tax collectors are there. So kind of who you've got present in this particular moment would be this conglomeration of like the town gossip and the town drunk and a group of men who are wallowing in their own pornography addiction and a drug dealer and a couple of thieves and a bunch of their compatriots. And they're all getting together at the rich friend's house because he can host them all. And the thing that is supposed to pique our interest in the whole deal is that with that group of people, Jesus decided to come. Like that's the thing that's supposed to stand out. Here's the group of people that got together to hang out and Jesus elected to be present, knowing that that's who was there. Well, the Pharisees, they're watching this happen And they look at the disciples who are also there. And at this point, we know that at least includes Simon, Peter, James, and John. And he looks at the Pharisees, look at them. And they say, why does your 
master, your teacher, your rabbi, eat with tax collectors and sinners, and they're like, uh, we don't know. We've been on the job for three days. We're not 100% sure what's going on either. And so Jesus enters in, and he says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. It's not the righteous who need to be saved. It's the sinful. And that is who I came for. And so the questions that it leaves us with are, what do we learn about Jesus from all of this? In learning something about Jesus, what do we learn about Jesus's people? And then as Jesus's people, what does that mean for us today? So we're just gonna kind of work through those questions. There's gonna be a little bit of a rhythm to this. What do we learn about Jesus? What does that mean for Jesus's people? And what does that mean for the church today? So the first thing we learn about Jesus is about his holiness. That Jesus is perfectly, entirely, utterly, awe-inspiringly holy. And what's interesting is that the passage doesn't actually tell us that explicitly, but that's what we're supposed to take away. They're out there in the boat fishing. They let their nets down, and there's something about this overwhelmingly large haul of fish that is so awe-inspiring to Peter, Simon, that it causes the reaction that you see in verse 8. What was it? Well, great question. But something about the overwhelming power of Jesus to command fish to overload these two boats makes it so that Peter just hits his knees there in a sinking boat and says, go away from me. Like that's the response that Peter, Jesus is probably like, I thought you would say thank you. But Peter is saying, depart from me. Go away from me. It's his holiness that's overwhelming to Peter. Jesus is entirely holy. What does that tell us about Jesus's people here? Well, the one, at least one thing we take away from Simon's interaction in the boat and in what we'll see in Levi is that Jesus's people recognize Jesus's holiness. They see it for what it is. It was clear and unmistakable to Peter in that boat. And Peter gets kind of, top billing, Simon gets kind of top billing in these first 11 verses, but don't forget the fact that James and John are also there. And so I don't know what it looked like spatially, but we got one boat over here loaded down with fish, Jesus and Simon Peter. And we got another boat over here, James and John, and their boat is loaded down with fish. And both the boats, you get the picture, are like sinking down into the water. And there's Peter in one boat on his knees asking the Lord to depart from him. And James and John in the other boat, like, can we just get this stuff to shore? Like, do we need to do this now, Peter? But it was obviously clear and compelling to them too because when they all get to land and Jesus says to follow, it's not just Simon that goes. It's also James and John. So whatever happened out there on the water was so clear and obvious and compelling and awe-inspiring that all three men see the holiness of Jesus and they leave everything to follow him. Think about Levi. Again, we don't really know what Levi knew about Jesus, but he must have known something. Something about the teaching, something about the healing, something about the casting out of demons, something. Because when Jesus walks by the tax collecting booth, calls over from the street and says, Levi, follow me, 
the invitation is enough. Like that's all it took. Two words from Jesus and Levi kind of looks around the tax collecting booth and says, okay. It was compelling. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. Enough so that all four of these men are willing to go and follow Jesus. So what does that mean for the church today? If you're someone who's walking with Jesus, what it is that you have to offer the world is the beauty of a holy savior. Like that's the thing you have to give. What it is that we as the church hold out to a broken and a hurting world is not just answers to people's theological questions, though those are good. It's not just a life that attempts to imitate the life of Jesus, though that is something we should be growing in. It's not just that we would hold out a verbal testimony about the cross, though that is necessary. What we hold out to people is the beauty of Jesus. Like, that's what we have to give. And if our answers to people's questions and our the model of our lives and our verbal testimony are devoid of marveling at and reveling in, rejoicing in, and compellingly describing the beauty of Jesus' perfection, then all of that stuff is going to fall short. There's plenty of information out there that people could go and get. There are plenty of moral people out there that someone could look to. There are other religions out there available, but we are the only people who carry with us the beauty of a Savior who is so utterly perfect that in his death, his righteousness could become ours. And that is an all or nothing proposition. You can't half-hearted accept the fact that Jesus was maybe partway holy. Because if he was not entirely holy, then we are entirely without hope. That's what we have to give the world. In all of its problems and in all of its brokenness and in all of its sin, the primary thing that we hold out as followers of Jesus is not a condemnation and a pronouncement against sin, though we'll get to that in a moment. What we hold out is the beauty of a savior who can overcome the sin. That's what we have to give. And if you're gonna dedicate your life to figuring out how to convey the gospel, spend 99% of your time figuring out how to paint the beauty of the Savior in all of his wonder. Because that's what we have to offer as followers of Jesus. As Christians, we've seen the holiness of Jesus. We've seen what that holiness on the cross means for us. And we have that to extend to the world. We also learn something in the passage about our brokenness and our sin. But it starts with Jesus. And what we see about Jesus is that Jesus seeks sinners in their sin. Think about Levi. Where does Jesus go in order to call Levi to follow him? To the tax collector booth. The identity that we get for Levi is tax collector, sinner. And Jesus goes right to that place and looks at Levi in the middle of all of his dishonest embezzling and he says, come and follow me. 
Where does Jesus go in order to engage with other people who are called tax collectors and sinners? He goes to the party that they were invited to. Not to some other place. And then he says, why don't you come here? He goes to them in their sin. I mean, think about that. Think about the moment that you realized Jesus was Lord and Savior. You saw his holiness and his grace for the very first time. Or maybe here this morning, you think about having never accepted Jesus as Savior. The own place that you have in your own heart that's most dark and most broken and the sin that if someone were going to tag it to you would be the thing that follows you around like a scarlet letter. Think about that thing. It's that thing that Jesus says right there. I'm seeking you right there. And I'll come to you in the middle of it. Oh, think about that. Like the beauty of the holiness of Jesus, the greatness of who he is, he'll come to you right in the ugliness of what's most broken inside of you. And that brokenness is the prerequisite for following him. And so what is that? If, if that's what Jesus is doing, what does that tell us about us? Well, it tells us that Jesus's people understand their brokenness at a base level. We see the holiness and the beauty of who Jesus is and we understand our own sinfulness and our own brokenness. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that you cannot completely understand yourself until you understand the beauty and the holiness of who Jesus is. Look at the way this goes for Peter, Simon. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. He saw all the fish. And he said, go away from me because I am a sinful man. That's what tumbles off of Peter's lips. And that is the reaction that all throughout Scripture people give when they see the holiness of who God is. Peter sees Jesus' holiness. He says, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. Isaiah, the prophet, sees the holiness of God and he responds in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6 like this. He says, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices. And then the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king the Lord of armies. Who knows what Isaiah thought about himself before that particular moment, but in that particular moment, when he saw the holiness of God, he understood the sinfulness of himself. And he said, I'm ruined because of it. I'd love to get the more detailed list. I'm a man of unclean lips. It was like, this is the most petty thing I can offer in this moment, but I could give a whole lot more. Job. Job spends most of the book of Job, arguing with his friends that if he could have one moment of conversation with God, 
he would be able to justify himself and why he doesn't deserve the suffering that he's undergoing. And in verse, or ch- chapter 39, God shows up and he begins to talk to Job. And he's asking him all of these rhetorical questions. And then at the start of 42, Job finally responds. And he says, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question, you will inform me. Then Job says, I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and am sorry for them, for I am dust and ashes. Sees the holiness of God. Understands clearly who he is. What's the point? When our eyes are open to see the holiness and the power, the beauty and the majesty, the might and the wonder of God, the King of Jesus, it causes us to see ourselves clearly. And what we see is that we are not him. We're made in his image, but in all the ways that he is limitless, perfect, and holy, we are limited, imperfect, and broken. And what's wildly beautiful about the whole deal is that in understanding our brokenness, we also understand that there's no need to push Jesus away from it. Look at what happens. Peter falls down. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, Lord. And Jesus' response, follow me. Like Jesus is begging, or Peter is begging Jesus, Go away from me because I am holy. And Jesus is responding to Peter, follow me because I'm holy. What an amazing sequence of events. Jesus comes to us in our sin, in our ugliness, and everything in us wants to hide that from him wants to hide it from our friends, hide it from our family, hide it from our church. And yet there's Jesus looking at you and longing for you to pull together all of that big old mess of sin into a big pile and to just bring it to him and to lay it at his feet. And in the middle of that, he is coming to rescue you. Like that is the beauty of Jesus. And maybe you've already seen that for yourself. The life of following Jesus is a life of understanding and constantly gazing at the holiness and the beauty of who Jesus is and the messiness and the brokenness of who you are and being totally overwhelmed that he would move toward you in that. Like that's a life of following Jesus. And that the grace and the mercy and the wonder of that would be so totally overwhelming for the entirety of our lives. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the more beautiful his holiness would seem. And because of the Holiness seems more beautiful, the uglier our sin would seem. And the uglier it gets, the more wondrous the grace is. This is who Jesus is. And so then he looks at you and he says, follow me. And you would say, why would I do anything else? Philip Ryken says it this way. When we finally see how sinful we really are, it is only natural for us to feel that we do not even deserve to come into God's presence. We are too guilty to be where God is, but this is exactly why Jesus came. He came to bring us close to God by dying on the cross for our sins. Our sinful, guilty hearts want to push Jesus away, but rather than pushing him away, we should hold on to him, asking for the forgiveness that only he can offer. We see Jesus in his holiness. We recognize that holiness. We hold that holiness out to the world. And as we do so, Jesus seeks us in the middle of our sin. And having seen his holiness, we understand our sin. And what does that mean for the church today? 
Well, it absolutely means that we need to make known the brokenness of humanity. We don't just talk about Jesus' holiness as if he were holy for no reason. We don't join sinners in their sin, but we seek them there. That's where Jesus went. And he's the Savior. And so we need to exercise wisdom in the way that it is that we seek broken people with the message of the beauty of Jesus' holiness and his grace. We need to do that wisely. But we don't become followers of Jesus and then him ourselves into the church. That's not the call. It's right and good for us to make known to humanity the reality of sin. We need to let the world know that humanity is broken and we need to point out and work against, be clear about the reality of sin and its devastating effects in all of its forms on individuals and society as a whole. And the way that we do that is we hold up the beauty of a holy and a righteous savior and we allow that to help people see the truth of their own brokenness and we go to sinful people in order to do that. And people are far more open to hearing about the beauty of Jesus than they probably are about hearing about the ugliness of their own heart. But once people see and hear the beauty of Jesus and the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and their hearts and their minds to the truth of who he is, they're going to understand their brokenness. That's what Jesus' people do. And there can be no half-hearted acceptance of that. Either we're sinful or we're not. And if we're not sinful, then we've disqualified ourselves from the saving grace that Jesus extends to us. That's going to be the entire tension that exists between Jesus and the Pharisees. They think that their adherence to the law has absolved them from their need for a savior. They don't think of themselves as broken. In their eyes, they're not at the party with Levi and they didn't need to be invited. These are sinful people, but they also can't figure out why Jesus would be there. They're not falling on their knees in the boat with Simon Peter before the holiness of Jesus because the Pharisees reckon themselves to be similarly holy. And if we think that we have no sin, then there is no grace. Grace is a posture that exists because of sin. And the moment you think that you've like, worked yourself into a state where your righteousness is such that you could save yourself, you have no need for Jesus all of a sudden. And there would be none for you. We see Jesus in his holiness. We make that known. We see that Jesus seeks us in our sin. We understand our sin and we make sin known. But then what is it about this invitation from Jesus? Well, Jesus calls sinners to follow him. Note that in both instances, he doesn't tell Peter and James and John, and he doesn't tell Levi that they need to do X, Y, and Z, get themselves cleaned up in a certain way, and then come and follow him. He calls sinners to come to him. He is the doctor, and he wants and longs and desires and craves to heal the sick. If we had no sin, there would be nothing for Jesus to do with us. He's come to call sinners. 
but he's come to call sinners to follow him. And when Jesus's people submit to the king, they leave behind everything in order to follow. James and John and Simon. They're there in the boat. They catch all those fish. They get the boats over to the shore. They're looking at potentially like a life-changing amount of fish there that they could sell. But suddenly those fishing boats don't seem like the whole world to them. And the money that they could make off of those fish appears to pale in comparison to what it would be like to follow Jesus. And so they walk away from it all because their tastes have changed. Their priorities have been upended. The trajectory of their life has completely shifted. They just leave it behind. And then Levi, we see that he leaves behind the sin that once marked him. And that is what happens when people interact with Jesus all throughout the Gospels, the woman at the well or Zacchaeus. The fact that a person's not willing to leave behind everything and follow Jesus is why some people have a conversation with Jesus and walk away sad. The holiness of Jesus and the understanding of the need for him is what compels Levi to walk away from his tax collecting booth, which is to walk away from his sin. As Jesus heals and interacts with people, he forgives their sin and then he tells them to go and sin no more. And the pictures in scripture are always stark. In fact, so much so that it can leave us a little bit frustrated because we see these people interact with Jesus and it appears that they do immediate, complete 180s and they never have any struggle after that. And we think about our own lives and there are moments where that appears to happen for us, but there are often times we're walking away from our sin or having our priorities adjusted or our tastes altered seems like this long, grueling, prodding sort of affair. And yes, that's what it is. The moment here looks really powerful in Simon Peter's life, but read the rest of Luke. He's going to wrestle with what that actually means for him all the way up until the moment that Jesus ascends into heaven after the resurrection. Like it is a struggle for Peter, but it's grace both ways. It's by the grace of God that you would have an interaction with Jesus and it would totally rearrange your life all in one moment and it is by the grace of God that he would leave you dependent upon him to slowly sanctify you over time. Because if he did it all in a moment, I think all of us would assume from that moment forward, I have no need for Jesus. They leave everything and they follow him. What does that mean for the church today? We make known the all-consuming invitation of Jesus. We don't soft pedal it. We don't make it seem like you could go halfway in. We don't just make Jesus appear to be kind of a good guy. We don't make sin out to be sort of bad. No. We make known that this is all-consuming. Jesus tells Peter, James, and John that they will be fishers of men. Literally, if you translated that, they're going to catch men alive. That's what they're going to do. And then what's happening at the party that Levi throws? Well, there are the other disciples. They're with Jesus, catching men alive. What happens at the start of the book of Acts when Peter stands up and he preaches and 3,000, 5,000 people come to know Jesus? He's catching men alive. He's not soft-selling it. 
He's not downplaying the reality of who Jesus is or downplaying the nature of sin. He's holding both of them up in all of their striking clarity and saying, look at the grace of this. This is the beauty of following Jesus. And it's compelling. And as the church, that's what we do. There's no half-hearted acceptance of it. It's all or nothing. Because a half-hearted acceptance of Jesus' invitation is no acceptance at all. Jesus could not go halfway for us on the cross. He couldn't get halfway up the hill to Calvary and then say, I think we're good here. I'm going to move on to something different. He went all the way and gave all of himself for us. And his call to us is one in which we respond by giving all of ourselves to him. When we see the king in his striking beauty and holiness and we see the ugliness of our sin, the road to salvation is one of total submission. I wanna end this morning by saying this. If you're walking with Jesus and you have been for some amount of time, we could get together every Sunday morning and all we could do is spend an hour saying, look at the beauty of Jesus, understand the brokenness of yourself, let's marvel at grace, and that would be a Sunday well spent every single time. These passages help us to do that, but they also give us an unmistakable call that we are to catch people alive. And we do so by holding up the beauty of Jesus and all of his holiness, the reality of sin and all of its ugliness, and the grace of God that Jesus would choose to move toward that brokenness and that ugliness. And if you're trying to figure out, well, I'm not very good at evangelism, just get really good about talking about the beauty of Jesus and have the courage to tell people that they're broken and let God and his sovereignty and in his goodness enter into the mix of all of that and draw people to himself. If you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can do so this morning. You can see Jesus's holiness and all of its beauty and in all of its majesty. Have your eyes open to the reality of your sin. Hear his invitation to come and follow him and you can go wholehearted in submission to Jesus and be saved today. In fact, you're probably here with someone who would love to have that conversation with you this morning. And if not, I would love to have that conversation with you. We're gonna close this morning in worship, in song. And so I pray that with the beauty of Jesus and the glory of his grace in front of our eyes, we can just sing with all of our hearts, I've decided to follow Jesus and there's no turning back. Let's sing together.